Welcome to the Crude Report. My name is Hai Gugaraz. I'm an associate editor at Argus Media, and I'll be talking today with my colleagues, senior reporter Chris Knight and Argus Air Daily editor Michael Ball. Mike, with the first week of COP26 behind us, uh, what are your key takeaways from the summit so far? Is it living up to expectations or fears from the U.S. energy industry? Yeah, I say in some ways it's living up to expectations, at least in the sense that none of the early announcements we heard last week are really what I call surprises, at least from the U.S. perspective. U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is co-hosting the COP, has for months called for the conference to result in action, what he calls, quote, coal, cars, cash and trees. And uh, he got pledges on some of those last week, I think three, coal, cash and trees two of which the Biden administration uh, offered direct support on financing for developing nations to address climate change and funding to help end global deforestation. The U.S. did join a group called uh, the High Ambition Coalition in pledging to end use of unabated coal-fired electricity, just meaning that it doesn't have carbon capture or some similar technology, uh, and to stop that use within line of preventing a more than 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in global temperatures. It also supported an end to funding overseas coal projects, uh, echoing a previous pledge it's made through the G7, so not much of a surprise there. Uh, Notably, the U.S. did not join a group of countries that has pledged outright end their use of coal-fired generation, and it also reiterated its pledge to cut methane emissions by 30% and convinced more countries to join those efforts. But these steps on coal and methane are already known or were expected sort of heading into the COP. Um, Biden has long called for a zero emissions U.S. grid by 2035, and that could include the use of coal or gas that has carbon capture or some similar technology. And methane has been a focus of recent regulatory and legislative wrangling by Democrats in Congress. One other key part I would highlight for the first week for U.S. companies is the, the COP's work on Article 6 of the Paris Climate Agreement. And this is going to set the rules for international trading of carbon credits and offsets. A lot of U.S. companies are getting into the voluntary carbon markets right now to help with their net zero emissions pledges or other emissions reduction goals. And this is going to affect how those markets will operate and potentially their ability to meet those goals. Our colleagues in Glasgow covering the COP have reported that there is some optimism that the lingering issues around Article 6, which have been unresolved for about, uh, what, six years now, uh, may finally cross the finish line this week. And one of the big issues there is the counting of the offsets, and and that is who gets to claim credit for the emissions reductions to ensure there's no double counting. There are some countries that want to be able to take credit for preserving, say, a rainforest while selling the credit to another country or company that could also claim the emissions reductions. If some of those rules don't get resolved soon, at least at this COP, uh, I think some U.S. companies that are using offsets will face additional criticism of greenwashing or that sort of thing and will come under increasing pressure to reduce their own emissions directly, at least maybe until some of this uh, stuff gets more resolved. Thank you. And Chris, uh, one of the new things that did come out last week was uh, an EPA rule for cutting uh, methane emissions from the oil and gas sector. Can you talk about uh, what its main points are and what's uh, U.S. industry's reaction so far? Yeah, so the Biden administration is going after methane uh, with particular rigor because methane is a short-term climate pollutant, meaning it packs a, a larger punch over a shorter time frame. So if you get methane out of the atmosphere quicker, it, you're going to see a lot bigger effect than just going after a normal greenhouse gas like CO2. So the, the EPA rule that came out last week would go after the potentially 300,000 or more existing oil and gas wells and other oil and gas facilities in the U.S., and it's modeled after some rules that were developed in Colorado and other states. It would basically require industry to monitor for leaks regularly. 
it would require industry to replace devices called pneumatic controllers that basically by design leak natural gas into the atmosphere as a way to power them. There's other equipment that it would require operators to replace. But one of the uh, wrinkles about going after methane from existing sources is that it uses a part of the Clean Air Act that hasn't been used that often. It's called Section 111D of the Clean Air Act. And this has a very long lead time. It gives a lot of role to states to implement it. And what it would say is that states have to follow a framework for implementing these emission cuts. And that could take anywhere from probably three to four years. So EPA itself doesn't project any major emission reductions until 2026. That is the, the long way of answering that the methane emission reductions uh, would be big from this rule, but they could take some time and they could be subject to a lot of legal challenges. One final wrinkle on the methane front is that in a recent $1 trillion infrastructure bill that uh, President Biden is supposed to sign in the coming days, they included $4.7 billion for going after oil and gas wells that have been abandoned by their owners. And so that would direct money to reduce some methane emissions in the near term. And then as far as how the oil and gas industry is taking the proposed methane regulations, it's split right now. The, the larger producers are supportive of the methane regulation. And we heard from BP, they said they actually uh, explicitly supported this regulation. Some of the smaller producers have been most concerned that these regulations could require them to close marginal and low producing wells. As a sort of nod to that, the EPA said that the smallest types of, of wells could be exempted from this mostly. They would, they would need to do a one-time survey for leaks, but after that, they wouldn't have to do routine surveying of their facilities. Uh, so we'll see in the, in the coming weeks how the oil industry reacts to these proposed rules, but Overall, right now, it's, it's, uh, they're mostly supportive of the idea of regulating methane. Uh, Mike, uh, one of the recent developments is the Supreme Court decided to hear a challenge to EPA's authority to regulate greenhouse gases from stationary sources. Is it expected to affect Biden's regulatory agenda? Absolutely. I mean, with the Democrats having to drop uh, what was called the clean electricity payment program from the budget reconciliation bill and, and that was a measure that would have tried to cut power sector emissions by about 80 percent over the next decade by basically paying utilities to use more zero low emission sources the administration is going to have to rely more heavily on its regulatory powers if it wants to achieve that same goal it seems and so this case could have a lot of effect on that the case at its core deals with epa's authority under that same section 111d that, that chris just mentioned uh, which deals with the regulating of existing stationary sources um, so that include power plants and refineries and so forth but this case at the moment just deals with the power plant emissions but it could go beyond that you've got 20 states and a few coal companies that say epa's authority under this part of the law as it relates to power plants is either extremely limited or non-existent and what they're trying to do is head off a new regulation similar to the clean power plan that EPA created under President Obama, which was later repealed by the Trump EPA and replaced with a less aggressive program called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. And what these states and companies are doing is appealing a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decision from earlier this year that overturned the Trump rule and said EPA actually has fairly broad authority when it comes to power plants. And that seemed to open the door to maybe another clean power plan type regulation. And so, you know, if this case sticks to those issues, just as it relates to power plants, it may not affect EPA's authority much beyond that sector. But uh, within the case, there's also this question that has been raised about whether EPA has the authority to issue rules of, quote, vast economic and political significance, 
without a specific nod from Congress. And that could really blow up the sort of scope and reach of this case quite a bit, uh, depending on what the court decides to do. I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so it's probably best to leave some of the predictions up to them. But I, I do think the fact that the court took this case is probably a bad omen to some degree for EPA. Uh, it hasn't even proposed a new regulation yet, and we've got the court taking up this case. But the agency has promised to do something and issue a rule that accounts for all the legal fighting that has taken place for over the past five or six years. So we may see something on that in the near future. Clearly, a lot will depend on how the court rules. Uh, if the 6-3 conservative majority decides to go big, that could spell trouble for the Biden agenda because you could have a decision that goes well beyond just the power plant authority. But I know there's also some creative lawyers out there, and many groups have been pushing for EPA action under other parts of the Clean Air Act besides 111D. So this may not be the end of things. And if I could just interject here to talk about how this relates to the oil and gas rule. One of the reasons you might be optimistic the oil and gas rule could survive, whereas EPA's authority to go after power plants might be more limited, is that with the oil and gas sector, this is a very cut and dry EPA rule. With the, with the power sector regulation, it's a complicated structure. It, it resembled cap and trade under previous iterations, whereas with the oil and gas sector, this is telling companies they need to reduce their emissions. It's telling companies they need to monitor for emissions. That's kind of the bread and butter of the Clean Air Act. The only novel aspects of it is that it would use this other section of the Clean Air Act that hasn't had much testing so far. One thing to add to this is that one of the reasons that Democrats have been thinking about using the budget law they're considering to go after methane and specifically adding a $1,500 per metric ton methane fee is because of all this legal uncertainty. Democrats are worried that methane regulations could be caught up in court for years and that oil and gas companies would have not really a huge incentive in the near term to reduce those emissions without some more prodding. So if they go forward with this $1,500 per metric ton fee, that gives them some near-term reductions. Under some of the earlier drafts we've seen, that methane fee would start to apply as early as 2023. So that would happen even if the Supreme Court invalidates EPA's authority to go after methane from oil and gas companies. Chris, uh, there was a bit of a dissonance in uh, President Biden's messaging in Glasgow. So on one hand, his administration is working uh, with other countries on an energy transition that would scale back fossil fuel production in the long run. But at the same time, the president is asking OPEC to pump more oil now. How's the White House squaring the circle on his competing short-term, long-term goals? So the Biden administration's perspective is pretty similar to a lot of recent Democratic presidents, including President Obama. The idea that they have is that while the world should be transitioning away from fossil fuels and moving toward renewable energy and electric vehicles, we live in the world uh, that we live in right now. And there's no benefit to having the public suffering with really high prices for energy. If you're a, a middle-income worker in Pennsylvania, you can't switch to renewable energy overnight. You know, even the wealthiest people in the world can't switch uh, very quickly or very easily. So they see high energy prices as basically just a tax on the middle class. And so their, their philosophy is that in the near term, they'd like to see stable markets. They'd like to see prices remain affordable. And one of their, their big concerns is that if prices spike up, people would say, well, the transition to green energy is not so great. It's costing me a lot uh, when I fill up my gas 
tank. It's costing me a lot to heat my house. And so this person might say, I don't want to do any sort of green transition. Over the long term, they're still committed toward the COP26 goals. They're still committed toward transitioning to a, a net zero electric grid by, I, I believe, 2030 or 2035. But they say that it's going to take time. A lot of the policy levers they have, all the clean energy tax credits that are in this large budget bill, those ones start to uh, take effect or have an influence on the energy sector for either one or two years or, or even longer. So their idea is that in the short term, pump more. In the long term, they want to use these incentives and policy mechanisms to transition the U.S. and the world toward renewables and away from fossil fuels. Hike, I'm curious, how is this dual message being perceived in Saudi Arabia and other major oil producers? Do they see uh, the irony to Biden's kind of conflicting messages? Yes, one part of the message on net zero emissions and uh, energy transition is actually quite uh, well accepted. And Saudi Arabia just a couple of weeks ago unveiled its own plans to reach that net zero emissions goal by 2060. The UAE has set 2050 as its target. Their programs are quite detailed. And in Saudi Arabia's case, the interesting thing is it still sees itself as producing oil. Uh, There is a role for oil in their net emissions goals. And uh, their energy minister says that, you know, it's it's something that other countries, including the U.S., can actually take as a role model. That's a direct quote. So that the net emissions part is accepted, however, on Biden's request to produce more oil now. That part of the message actually seems to have fallen on deaf ears, at least for now. OPEC Plus at its uh, early November meeting decided to stick to its original plan to increase production uh, as was decided earlier in the year by an additional 400,000 barrels a day every month. The White House has been uh, asking to produce more, but the question here is a there are actually few OPEC uh, countries with spare capacity and really it's Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Kuwait and the UAE and they just don't see a demand increasing as fast as US as it is increasing. There is a lot of uncertainty that is being cited by the Producers Alliance and so they just are taking things a lot easier than the White House would like them to do. So. We will see how effective the White House diplomacy will be in the coming weeks and months. And with that, we have come to the end of this podcast. You can find our stories and more in-depth coverage of politics and policy and geopolitical news and insights as it specifically relates to oil and emission markets in Argus Air Daily, Argus America's Crude, and Petroleum Argus. You can find out more information on all uh, services at www.argusmedia.com. And we have also established a special news hub for the COP26 Climate Summit. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of The Crude Report. 